Time is pressing on, so we need to go to the Word of God this morning. And uh, please come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And we are continuing this morning with our study uh, entitled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. I understand this is part 11. And uh, we're almost through. Uh, We're getting there. So come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And just reading, uh, well, just a part of verse 18. Ephesians 6, 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The Amplified puts it this way. Praying always with every kind of prayer. Moffat's translation says, pray with every manner of prayer. Now, every manner and every kind of prayer can be viewed in two ways, and both are equally correct. It can mean praying on and all occasions. It can mean praying for Every and any occasion, all manner of prayer. That could mean, of course, uh, public praying. It could mean private praying. It could mean family praying together. It could mean corporate prayer when we come together in our prayer gatherings at church. It can mean praying inwardly and silently. It can mean praying outwardly and verbally. It can mean all of those, any of those, and many more of those. Every kind of prayer, all kinds, all manner of praying. Or, or it can also mean various kinds of prayer that are suitable and appropriate for a particular need. Now, we must realize that if we're praying for certain needs and certain things, there is a kind of prayer for that. You know, we tend to think that one size fits all, that one prayer will do it. Actually, it won't, because there are different types of prayer, different manner, different kinds of prayer. For instance, just to mention a few, there is a prayer of intercession, a prayer of agreement, a prayer of binding and loosing, a prayer of faith, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise, of consecration, a praying in the Spirit, a prayer of worship, prayers of repentance, prayer of dedication, prayer of petition, prayer of supplication. Slight difference in those two. A petition prayer is a a general asking for something. A supplication is a more focused prayer. It's more fervent prayer. It's a prayer that's more determined to go after something in a very determined way. There's a prayer of, I suppose for want of a better word, reciprocity. Pray you one for another that you may be healed. It's a kind of a two-way prayer that. And so, and there's more. So there's various types, manners, kinds of prayer. And this is what we want to look at this morning. Now, obviously, that's a long list, and we don't have time this morning uh, to get through all of those, of course, but we will just pick out just maybe one, two, three 
uh, of these types of prayers that we mentioned there. And then you can, in your own time, you can think about those and perhaps you can uh, read up about them. First of all, there is the prayer of intercession. Prayer of intercession. In Job chapter 9, verse 32 and 33. Now I'm going to read this from the New King James. You don't necessarily need to turn to this. But in Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33, it says these words, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Now the King James Version, the authorized version, puts it slightly differently. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any day's man betwixt us that might lay his hand on us both. Then the Amplified Version, same verse, puts it this way. For God is not a mere man as I am, that I should answer him, that we should come together in court. There is no umpire between us who may lay hand on us both, would that there were. And so notice here that Job is wishing for a day's man, an umpire, or a referee, a mediator, one that would come and argue the cause on both sides. Somebody that could lay a hand upon God and lay a hand upon man and understand how God feels and how man feels. Someone that would intercede. Someone that would plead someone's cause on their behalf. In other words, an intercessor. That's what he's talking about. Isaiah 59 verse 6, And he saw there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. So God saw that there was no intercessor for man. There was no mediator. There was no umpire. There was no day's man. There was nobody to put a hand upon man and a hand upon God and intercede and come and plead the cause. So what did he do? He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the most perfect intercessor, the most perfect mediator. His whole life on earth was filled with unbroken communion with the Father for mankind. His great prayer in John 17 that we read just a couple of weeks ago that great prayer for the church, for his body, for his people, and how he interceded and how he prayed uh, for us. And we saw what he was praying for, what his desire was, what he wanted for us, how that he wanted us to be one with him, and, and how that he wanted us to see him in his glory. So he was praying desperately that we would see that and have that and experience that. And so that was a wonderful example of Christ interceding. 1 Timothy 2 and 5, it says there is one God and one mediator, one intercessor between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. In John's little letter, his first letter, 1 John 2 and 1, John says, My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. Now, John uses a legal term here. In fact, it's a term that's still even in vogue today. W.E. Vine said the word advocate is parakletos, which was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, counsel for the defense, an advocate. Then generally one who pleads another cause, an intercessor, an advocate, a mediator. It also means a succor, one who brings comfort. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit was one who was just like him who was called alongside to help as our advocate. If you go to a court of law today and you're up on a charge, you would be looking for the best advocate to plead your cause, to fight your case, to be in your corner, wouldn't you? Well, the Holy Spirit on earth is our advocate. He's in our corner. He pleads our cause. He's the mediator for us. Christ is our advocate in heaven. He's the one who sits at the right hand of God and pleads our cause. And so we have this wonderful sense that we have Christ who says in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And in Romans 8.34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we have Christ as our advocate in heaven interceding for us, but also got the Holy Spirit on earth who is our advocate, who is our intercessor, who is our mediator. Abraham was another intercessor, was he not? In Genesis 18 and 19, those two chapters, you see he's, he's interceding. He's mediating with God for the awful, sinful, pagan city of Sodom. Why is he doing that? Because Lot's in there with his family, his relative. And so he's really actually pleading for them. He's interceding for them. He's mediating for them before God because God's going to destroy that city. That sure is going to happen. But he said, God, would you spread if there's 50 righteous? And he bartered with God. He mediated with God. And in the end, he actually got Lot and his family saved. Now, we know Lot's wife turned back and was a disaster for her, but he, he was able to get Lot spared because of his intercession. Moses was an intercessor. In fact, he was even willing to give his own life for his people. Way back in Exodus chapter 32, we see a scene here where Moses is up the mountain. He's receiving the commandments of the Lord. And he's there a long time. And the people got restless. And so they said, well, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. And so they decided that they would go back to their old gods they had in Egypt. And so they got Aaron, the priest, to make them a golden calf. And then in verse 4, it says, And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it in with an engraving tool, and made a molded calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink 
and they rose up to play. It just shows you how that within just a few weeks, how this people had so desperately backslidden in heart that are prepared to even make these golden idols and worship them. The Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, and they have made themselves a molded calf, and worshipped and sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Hmm. And Moses pleaded with the Lord as God. See, here's an intercessor. Here's one who's going to plead a cause for another. Here's one who's going to stand in the gap between God and between men. Moses pleaded with the Lord as God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people with whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this harm to your people. Relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of to give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. See, there's intercession at work right there, isn't it? Now, if you'd read on in that story, you'd see that when Moses went down the mountain, he had to deal very severely with the people. Punishment had to be meted out. If you go on right down, in fact, to verse 29, then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man is opposed to his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Huh. Moses went before the Lord and said, Lord, I want you to truly forgive these people. I have meted out some justice on your behalf. Some punishment has come into the camp. Now, Lord, forgive the camp. But if you can't find it in your heart to forgive them, just blot me out of your book. Now, there is intercession. There is somebody putting their very life on the line for somebody else. Moses was a great intercessor. Jeremiah was a great intercessor for his people. He wept and he cried many, many times. They would call them the weeping prophets. He wrote a book called Lamentations. That ought to tell you everything, doesn't it? Again and again and again, he pleaded with them. Paul was a great intercessor. If you read any of Paul's prayers, particularly the Ephesian prayers, and if you read those prayers, and we just read a little bit there a moment ago, just the beginning. And if you read those prayers, you'll see that Paul was interceding for the people and wanting God to so 
bless them and open their eyes and give them revelation, understanding of who they were in Christ and their part in the body of Christ and all those things. Constantly raised up churches and he interceded for them continually, even when he wasn't with them and he wasn't in their presence when he was somewhere else raising another church. He would remember them and he'd pray for them and he'd read his prayers. What fantastic prayers he prayed for the church. And as we said, the Holy Spirit is an intercessor. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because, note it again, he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now this verse not only reveals to us that the Holy Spirit is our intercessor on earth, Christ is our intercessor in heaven, not only that, but he helps us to be intercessors. How does that work? Well, the Holy Spirit can take our weak, frail, not knowing what to pray for prayers. And we have lots of those, haven't we? He can take all of those and he can energize them. And he can embolden them. And he can give us courage and strength while we pray. He can take that and he can add a whole new dimension, to a whole new dynamic to that prayer. How many times have you found yourself in prayer not knowing what to pray for, maybe not even knowing how to pray for it, not knowing, and you're struggling with this, and you're wondering, what can I say? What can I do? How should I pray? What can I think about this? Lord, how should I present this? And you're struggling with that. That's when the Holy Spirit can help us and give us enlightenment and encouragement and give us added strength and put some power into those prayers. And I'm sure all of us at some point or others find ourselves struggling in a certain area in prayer and we've been praying and we're getting nowhere and we have asked, Lord, help me. And the Holy Spirit suddenly comes and helps us and then there's a new energy to the prayer. There's a new quickening for that prayer. Suddenly it becomes clear to you and you know how to pray and you know what to pray for and there's new life comes into that prayer. Well, that's praying in the Spirit. That's praying in the Spirit. Now, as Pentecostals, we believe there's not a dimension to praying in the Spirit and that's praying in other tongues. We'll talk about that in a moment. But somehow the Holy Spirit who is the intercessor in our, somehow he gets behind our prayers and it gives an energy and life that wasn't there before. And when that happens, that's praying in the Spirit. You know, all of us pray and all of us should pray and all of us do pray, no doubt. But how many times have our prayers become ritualistic, perfunctory? We go through the motions and we pray and we do our list and we do all of that. We haven't felt a single solitary thing. And we're not even sure if our prayers has even gone past the ceiling. Well, in those times, that's when we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to embolden us, to enlighten us. And so that there's a quickening to the prayer. So that we feel we've got somewhere. Boy, we touched heaven today. 
Lord, I really feel that prayer is going to be answered. Lord, I really sense that something's happening when I prayed today. That's what I'm talking about. And, and whenever you hit that, you're praying in the Spirit. Now we should pray at all times in every manner of prayer, in all kinds of prayer. But we need to be praying in the Spirit, don't we? Now, as I said, as Pentecostal believers, we believe there's not a dimension to that. And we see this in, of course, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. And we really don't have time to, other than just touch a little on this this morning, because it's not our main subject, obviously. But Paul here speaking about tongues and prophecy and interpretation and all the rest of it. He says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue, which is an unknown tongue, does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. Howbeit, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification. That's a building up. An exhortation. That's a drawing near. And comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Builds up himself. That's one very, very good reason why we should speak in other tongues. Because it helps to build up ourselves spiritually. This is what Paul's saying. Edifies. Builds up. That's where we get the word edifice from. A building's an edifice, isn't it? He speaks in a tongue, edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Why? Well, because the church understands it. It's the language they understand. Whereas the tongue's a language they don't understand, so it edifies yourself. <clears throat> then he said, I wish that you all spoke with tongues. So never let it be said that Paul was against speaking in tongues. And what he was against us was the abuse of it in the Corinthian church. That's what he was against. And he tries to correct that in this particular chapter. But actually, he was very much for speaking in other tongues. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, except unless he interprets that the church may receive edification. Now, there's two things here in this particular chapter, and this can be a little bit confusing for some people who doesn't understand this. There's a private speaking in tongues. Most tongue speaking actually is a private affair. It's for our own personal edification doesn't speak unto man, but unto God. But when it comes in a church setting, then there is another dimension to it. If we come into church this morning, right from the bell, right from the moment Clifford stood up here, and right to the moment I finish, and all he did and all I did was just speak in tongues, what possible good would that do you? You wouldn't understand the word we say. Unless it was interpreted. Now, of course, he regulates how many tongues interpretations can be interpreted even. He regulates that. So there's not, it's not wild. So this is, he's trying to bring some sense into the whole thing. But because he mentions two types, he mentions the private praying in tongues and the public speaking in tongues, sometimes people get mixed up on these two. They say, when you come into church, well, you can't really speak in tongues absolutely unless there's an interpretation. Well, we couldn't continue on if there's no interpretation. And we couldn't do the whole service in tongues because then none of us would understand. I suppose that's pretty simple, isn't it? But the Corinthian church was getting to that stage where tongues had become such a big emphasis that everything was done in tongues. Nobody was understanding it. And he goes on to try to correct that. But anyway, he goes on to say here, 
Verse 12, even so, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification, for the building up of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in, in an unknown tongue, that is, pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion there? You say, well, what's the point? What is the conclusion? Well, listen, I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing also with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. So in other words, he says, listen, it's wonderful to speak in tongues. It builds you up spiritually. Please do it. He says, I do it more than a whole lot of you put together. But he said, when you come together in a church, situation, then there's a different dimension, different dynamic to it. So he says, make sure then, if that's the case, that you don't spend the whole service all speaking in tongues, because nobody will know what anybody's saying. Nobody will be built up other than yourself, but that's not touching somebody else, is it? So he says, if there is the gift of tongues when it comes to an interpretation, he says, even he even then goes on to talk about how that is even regulated within the body as they meet together corporately. Are you getting this? All right. I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in the tongue. I could come here this morning for 45 minutes, stand up here and just speak in tongues to you. And you'd look at me and say, well, David, I don't know what in the world you think that's doing to me, but I'm just bored listening to you. I think you've gone off your rocker. And you're people that understand that. So if somebody came in and didn't understand it, they would definitely think I was certifiable, wouldn't they? So we don't do that. Because I would rather speak 10,000 words in a tongue that you can understand. I'd rather speak five words you can understand than 10,000 words you can't understand, I should say. So, that's what he's saying there. Now, in the Romans 8 chapter we read together, he says, he himself, the Holy Spirit, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. It actually means with groanings that cannot be uttered in articulate speech. So it could be a situation where there is a, a groaning, a literal groaning within your spirit that you can't actually articulate. You can't find the words to say. You can't put it into words. It's, a, it's like a prayer burden within your heart. And, and, and as if the Holy Spirit himself is groaning through you. There's an ache in your heart for somebody you've been praying for. A loved one, a friend, or somebody in need. And there's, there's that groan comes into your spirit that you can't actually articulate. That's when speaking in tongues can be such a tremendous help. Speaking in unknown tongues, in inarticulate speech, it's inarticulate to us. Paul goes on to say that there's, there's many, many languages in this word. None of them are without significance. None of them. Paul says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, chapter 13, have not love, I am nothing. Tongue of men and of angels. When you pray in an unknown tongue, 
Your spirit prays, but your understanding is unfruitful. But the Holy Spirit who searches the hearts knows what that is. He knows what that prayer is. He knows what that language is because he gave it to you. Well, we should do more teaching than that, shouldn't we? Because then you have to leave so much unsaid and undone. But anyway, the Holy Spirit can help us in prayer to intercede, even with groanings which cannot be uttered in articulate speech. So an intercessor is one who stands in the gap for another, one who intercedes and prays for another. Now, let me just stop just a moment and say this. Every one of us, without exception, every believer can be an intercessor. Not everyone is. Not everyone wants to. Not everyone wants to pray and intercede for others. But every one of us can. Now the reason why I say that is this. And I'm not going to try to offend you with saying this. But it's just a reality. Within the church, over this past number of years, there's come in a whole thing about intercessors. And it has bred an elitism within churches, where, oh, they're the intercessors. And it has put pride in their hearts, where they have lifted themselves up, oftentimes above any leadership in churches, because we're the intercessors, you see. So we're the ones God speaks to. And you can't find that in the New Testament. It's just not there. It isn't there. There's no select group in the New Testament called intercessors. Every single one of us is called to be an intercessor before the throne of God. We may not want to do it, but every one of us is called. Now, there's no question that some enters into that intercession in a more profound way, in a more enthusiastic way, in a higher level than perhaps others. And that's wonderful. Thank God they do. Nothing against that. Would to God all of us did it. But I have seen many, many times again and again and again in churches where a group has become where the intercessors and after where the intercessors want to run the whole church. They want to bypass the whole leadership because God's speaking to us. He's not speaking to you, but he's speaking to us. We're the intercessors, you see. But you can't find that in the New Testament. It's not how it's run, folks. And yet it's a wonderful thing to intercede, stand in the gap for others. Now, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Paul said this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. It is our duty to intercede for our nation, for our government. You don't have to like them. You may prefer to vote for one above another. That's democracy. But is our duty to pray for those even we may not like them? Is our duty to pray for them, to intercede for them? That's what Paul said to Timothy. Now remember that they're living under a Roman totalitarian government. They didn't have democracy. And yet Paul says, pray for them. The powers that be are ordained of God. Pray for them. What gives us the right to intercede for others? Christ is our ground, is he not? He is our right. 
because he is the intercessor, isn't he? He's the intercessor of all intercessors. And 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Ephesians 5 and 30, We are members of his body and flesh, of his flesh and of his bones. So the fact that you and I are in Christ and that Christ by his spirit is in us, that gives us the right and the responsibility to intercede for men, for governments, for the nation, for family, for friends, or whoever. That's the ground that we stand on. And so, just a little about the prayer of intercession. But then what about the prayer of authority? The prayer of authority. We better move on quickly. Ephesians 1, 19 and 21, it talks about, well, let me just read it to you. Ephesians 1 and verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, verse 22, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Christ himself then is seated in heavenly places. But look down here in chapter 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. And so Christ is seated in heavenly places. But then he says, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And in fact, we're not going to read it, but if you're to read in Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about that spiritual warfare, about putting on the whole armor of God, it talks about us standing in Christ with our spiritual armor upon us. And so, when it comes to the place of authority, our authority is in Christ. That's why we can pray the prayer of authority because we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Now in Matthew 18, 18, it talks about that. We read this last week about binding and loosing. Whatever you be bound on earth, should be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, should be loosed in heaven. And we talked about that in the strict context that Jesus mentioned it, which was to do with forgiveness, forgiving one another. And if that didn't work, taking a witness along, and if that didn't work, bring it to the church. I didn't talk about us binding and loosing, but that was in the strict context of the sense of forgiveness and discipline regarding the body of Christ in the church. But there's another meaning to it than just that, because in Matthew chapter 16, there's another aspect here. If we can have a wee quick look at that.
Jesus is asking the disciples, uh, who do you say that I am? Some said, well, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he said, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say, also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I notice here he's not talking about forgiveness, is he? And in fact, this was an entirely different context. Now, I can't go into this morning the whole thing about Peter, the rock, and all that. You, you know where we stand in that, and, and Peter's not what we believe the Catholic Church believes. You know we don't believe that, so we don't need to go into all of that there. But here he's saying that there's the power to bind and to loose. And this is a tremendous power that God has given to the church. I don't believe it's just for Peter, but he's given to the church to bind and to loose. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, just back a little bit. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute both saw and spoke. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does, cast out, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided itself against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. So there is binding on loosing that has nothing to do with forgiveness in the context that he spoke in the first instance, but to do with other instances where Satan was binding and people needed loosed. And so the prayer of binding and loosing is a tremendous prayer when it comes to authority. In Luke chapter 13, and because of time we won't read it, but you remember the little woman who for 18 years was bent over and Jesus came and loosed her and suddenly she stood up and he said, Ought not this woman whom Satan has bound be loosed? And so there's a binding and loosen when it comes to Satan, even when it came to sickness in that case. So there's, there's an area uh, of prayer and authority to bind and to loose, to bind the strong man and to loose his works off people's lives. And we even see that in Luke chapter 13. So that's the prayer of authority. And then finally, we need to look quickly at the prayer of agreement. Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth 
concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, I've already explained that goes along with the context of forgiveness and dealing with the situations within the church where discipline has been administered, where forgiveness has been sought and, and all the rest of it. And, and he talks about agreeing, being in agreement on, the, on, the, on how to deal with that and what to do about that. that that's why probably it said uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name. You know, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word has to be established. You know, there was, there was, there were certain criteria for people to be judged in the Old Testament, even in murder. There had to be at least two witnesses before the death penalty came. You know, so it was quite strict. So in the context of Matthew 18, 18, 19, where it talks about forgiveness, that prayer agreement comes in. We already established that. However, however, the principle of praying in agreement is tremendous. Be in a unity together. In fact, it can work on the negative. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Remember how God came down and saw them? They were all as one. They were in unity together. And he says, now nothing will be withheld from them which they want to do because they were unified. They were together. They were a force, a potent force, even if it was negative, it was evil. But the principle applies. How much more whenever it's positive and it's godly and it's spiritual and it's heavenly, when that comes together in unity, there's a powerful force with that. There's a power with that. In Acts chapter 2, the 120 is in the upper room. And in verse 1 it says, they were all with one accord in one place. There was a unity. They were there for 10 days. You get 120 people together, especially church people, for 10 days in one room and you still maintain unity, that's got to be the Spirit of God, isn't it? Eh? There's something wonderful about men and women praying in agreement. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, they were all with one accord in one place. Same principle. They maintained that unity. And the Holy Spirit came in a mighty way. There's something powerful about People agreeing together in prayer. In 1859, James McQuilkin, Jeremiah Manili, Robert Carlyle, and John Wallace, four young men, four young countrymen, away up there, a hockle And they got together and they said, God, we're going to pray for revival in this nation. We're sick and tired of the spiritual malaise that's happened in our wee country. And they got together week after week after week, praying and praying and praying for revival to come to the nation. And for weeks, nothing happened. But they wouldn't stop. They wouldn't give up. They were united in prayer, the four of them. And after a couple of months, one person came to Christ. And then another came. And then another, and another, and another, and another. And then other churches began to twig on, as we say. They caught on, and they began to pray. And before you know it, the Holy Spirit came, and the revival that touched this nation was like no other. It was called the year of grace. 10% of 
of the population came to Christ in one year. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if 10% of the city of Belfast, 10%, can you imagine if 27,500 people came to Christ in one year? Can you imagine if over 770,000 people in the whole of Northern Ireland came to Christ in one year? Could you imagine you Filipinos down the back? Can you imagine if 8 million Filipinos came to Christ in one year? Could you imagine, Tessa, from you're from America, could you imagine there's 256 million people in your nation, isn't there? Thereabouts. Can you imagine if 10% of them came to Christ in one year? Can you imagine the impact that would have nationally? apart from the churches, apart from the crime rate dropping like stones that it did in Northern Ireland, can you imagine what would happen in this country if God would do that again? Our churches would be packed. People would be knocking at our doors at 12 and 1 o'clock in the morning crying to get saved. That's what happened in 1859. People was in the fields working and the farmers couldn't work. They fell in among the, the, the potato trying to get saved. They were running to the minister's house in the middle of the night knocking them up trying to get saved. Little children in school, when they had their lunch break, they would go into a room and they'd begin to pray. They're talking here six, seven, eight-year-olds praying and the teachers would get saved. Hmm? Whenever the orange marches in the 18th, because believe it or not, they were still marching then too. Whenever they went to the fields, there was not one row, there was not one fight, there was not one arrest made, because in those days it was just as bad. There was not one, the police had nothing to do. It never had happened before. Uh, and whenever they went to the fields, they weren't talking political things. They weren't talking about oranges. They were talking about the revival. And they were going on the trains and they are singing the songs of Zion. There and back again. And all they heard about was the revival. And it all happened because four young men got into agreement and prayed the prayer of agreement until God broke through. Boy, we badly need that again, don't we? time's gone. I haven't time to talk about prayer and praise. Prayer and praise is a wonderful thing. There's something about adding praise to your prayers that makes a difference. I tell you what, you cannot add praise to your prayers without thanksgiving coming along with it. As soon as you start praising God when you're praying, you'll, you'll find something to thank God for. It'll just flow naturally out of your spirit. And when that begins to happen, <laughs> Paul and Silas, when they were in that prison, at midnight, at the darkest hour, when they were beaten, when they were chained to the wall, and they began to pray and sing, it says, praises unto God. And when that happened, what happened? A great earthquake came. Something happened when they prayed, and they coupled it with praise. Even the very apostles in Acts chapter 5, even whenever they were whipped and beaten because they were preaching in his name, you know what they said? The Bible says they glorified God that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. They praised and they worshiped God even after they're beaten. It's no wonder they turned their world upside down. Amen. So just a few things this morning. There's a whole list of them that you'd take the month of Sundays to get through. 
And we haven't got all the time to do that. Sure we haven't. But just a few things to help us in this journey of Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be in this house today. We thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for your prophetic word that was spoken this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge that has been both of them. Lord, help us, Lord, to be your people. Help us, Lord, to walk your walk, to live your life, and to be the people of God that you destined us to be. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless us this incoming week, Lord, as we seek your face, as we pray before you, as we intercede on behalf of others. Lord, as we offer up our supplications and petitions and requests, we thank you, Lord, that we have a hearing ear of God. We thank you that your ear is open and your eye is upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, tonight, please.